My name is Mo Levich, and along with Greg Brown, <clears throat> we are the musical directors of the Big Band of Rossmore. Uh, Greg is the musical director at Northgate High School, and I've been the volunteer director steering the band for over 25 years. Welcome, welcome to you all for the 33rd episode of the Big Band of Rossmore's special COVID-19 director's notes. Since March 16th, on almost a weekly basis, we continue to have our band rehearsals. It's allowed us to continue to grow in a different way. Using this platform called Director's Notes, we've been able to band together to continue learning about music, culture, and each other as we play music ranging in ages from 14 to 98, the range of age in the Rossmore Big Band. Tonight is a special evening for two reasons. Our special guest, Tom Wolf, joins us for a valuable history lesson that will thrill any big band fan. He will be introduced formally by our own Maxfield Hunt. Maxfield, Maxfield, you know, you know Maxfield. He joined the band when he was in seventh grade. He couldn't see over a music stand. <laughs> <clears throat> he became a featured soloist with the band. Additionally, as a communications major at San Francisco State, Maxfield is also our producer and director for these director notes. And we wanna thank you for that, Maxfield. <clears throat> we also, tonight, welcome for the very first time, Rossmore residents and friends of the band. We've always had open rehearsals at Hillside Clubhouse. Now we have open rehearsals at the Zoom Clubhouse. And so we're sharing ourselves tonight for the first time, crossing over outside of the band membership. And we have over 50 residents that have signed up or friends of the band tonight. So um, with that, over to you, Maxfield. All right. Well, indeed, welcome, everybody. This is this is just tremendous. Really, really glad that this is going on. A brief note before we jump in. You know, fundamentally, we're navigating Zoom together. So please bear with us for technical snafus if they are to occur. It's kind of like the safety announcements when you board a plane. None of us are expecting anything to go wrong, but you really want to know, you want to be educated. Thankfully, tonight, the stakes are much, much lower. We're not on a plane. I'm not a pilot. This is only a Zoom. That having been said, tonight's program is best experienced in Zoom's speaker view. And this is something that can be toggled in the upper right corner of most computers. If you're in some other device, not to worry, you're okay. Secondly, so far we're great on this regard. In many of those bit in other Zooms, you know, you hear horror stories of people making a ruckus, you got a naked guy in the background. Thank you so much for being cognizant of these sorts of things. We ask that you remain muted until we have a discussion, which of course it's coming. And by all means, at that point, bring it on. The mission of Director's Notes, the Director's Notes series, rather, beyond just keeping our band together, is founded in history, as, as Mo suggested. It's important to remember that the notion of having an intergenerational big band means that half of our members are not yet cool enough to live within the walls our band is housed in, right? And this, this is really incredible. And in order to take a bandstand as a big band authentically, it is vital that we have firsthand accounts of the sounds, the textures, and other sensations that brought us to where we are today. You know, here we are able to commute, compute, create, curate, consume all the devices we put in our pockets. Well, along this lineage, 
where do supper clubs and where does big band jazz fit into this larger cultural narrative? For this, we're hearing from Tom Wolfe. We are joined by a man who just epitomizes the, the elegance and prestige that is the supper club. Tom Wolfe has lived many lives. I'm telling you, this chap, so fancy, he, he founded a, a concierge organization which is intimidating to even try to pronounce. <laughs> Come on. Indeed, he is America's first concierge. Today, Tom resides atop Knob Hill in San Francisco, where he is the chief concierge and, of course, director of heritage at the Fairmont. Tom, we really appreciate you for joining us. Maybe you could start off telling us a little bit about how you got to where we are today. Well, that's a, that's a tough intro to follow there, Max, but you did it. That's great. Great. I mean, you should, you should be up on the stage of the Venetian room, really. <laughs> so in many ways, and, and, and you know what, maybe one day that will happen. So, uh, Good evening, everybody, and it's it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, and I want to thank Maxfield because Maxfield was the person who provided the link for that. He's right. I, I've got this kind of uh, having done everything, which is which is a great resume to have, you know, to do everything. And uh, uh, let's start off with uh, a quick uh, short form of uh, how I got where I am today. Uh, I, I I was. Uh, I went to uh, American University in Washington, D.C. Having grown up in New York, I, I, I was born in 1944, so I grew up as a young, young man and a, as actually as a child, and then later as a teenager in New York City, moving back to Washington, D.C., where I was actually born uh, at the age of about uh, 18. And... Uh, I went to work because my sister had a connection. I went to work at the United States Senate. And uh, to cut to the chase, I found myself working for Senator Robert Kennedy, uh, who was Jack Kennedy's brother, the late president's brother, uh, when he was a senator from the state of New York. This was after Jack was assassinated. I guess I moved to DC and not long after that uh, Jack was assassinated. I was in prep school at the time, very sad. Uh, from that, uh, I went on to college, did my, uh, did my uh, broadcasting uh, major. That's what I was in, into radio and, radio and TV communications and actually worked in radio and TV for a while uh, and enjoyed it very much. It was a lot of fun. I particularly liked the production aspect of it, putting things together. Back then it was tapes and you know you had to splice the tape to do that was, the technology was really in the dark ages but i i it's nice to have that reference because when somebody's talking about a reel to reel you know what you know what it is um and uh then out of a clear blue sky i suddenly decided to go work in hotels uh, one of the things that I had as an advantage, uh, having grown up in New York, was my parents liked to go out a lot. And we'd go out to these nice, nice places in Manhattan, and inevitably we'd stroll through the lobby of some grand hotel, maybe just to have a, you know, a, a, a little refreshment there before, after dinner. And uh, 
I really liked the feel, the sophistication of it. If you look behind me, that's the Venetian room. And you had that feel of glamour and sophistication and everything. And I thought, I'd like to be uh, involved in that somehow and be the person who makes somebody really feel good about what they're doing. So I started off and shortly thereafter, um, unfortunately, my dad passed away and I had a couple of options, but I decided that I would kind of break the mold and go to England and see if I could get work there. Now, one thing I want, one message I like to give to everybody, uh, whatever age they are, but especially to the younger crowd is, you will always find the naysayers out there. They're there in proliferation and by gosh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, I listened to the naysayers at first. Well, I was 23, you know, I was naive. And they said, oh, you can't go to work in England. You'll never get a job there. You'll never get uh, a work permit, blah, 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 blah. Well, I said, okay, thank you very much for that advice. And I decided to not work in England, but I went there anyway on a vacation. While I was over there, I met some hotel people and they said, why don't you really want to work here? Why don't you come and work here? And I said, well, I, I'm worried about getting a work permit. I can't get one. I said, what are you talking about? You don't get the work permit. Your employer does. Here, let me introduce you to somebody. Next thing you know, uh, fast forward, I was working at the Ritz Hotel at the tender, tender age of 25. And uh, the Ritz Hotel in London, a very grand, grand hotel to this very day with the palm court that served afternoon tea and uh a really, really nice uh, clientele. Uh, I remember that was back when, uh, that was in the late 60s and London was the place to be. That's when the Beatles were just starting out and I used to see them all the time. In fact, Paul McCartney got married at the Ritz and Twiggy, uh, some of you remember Twiggy, uh, she was in and out of there all the time. She got married at the Ritz as well. So, and I, I also met the queen mother there. That was probably the, the nicest thing that happened to me during my uh, tenure in uh, London. <laughs> so the thing that got me most interested was seeing the concierge in action. We didn't have that position in the United States at that time. I knew what it was because I'd read up on my travel books and I knew that the concierge was the person who would make uh, all the arrangements for you once you were staying in a hotel. But actually showing up there and meeting the concierge was a revelation. Uh, here was a walking encyclopedia. Here was a person who could quote a train schedule by heart without having to consult a book, uh, who had the connections available. If uh, I, I remember Victor, who was the head concierge at the Ritz, he told me a story once of how he uh, had a customer who wanted to get a helicopter and he lived in Ireland and he called Victor up. He said, listen, I really, really need to buy a helicopter. Can you help me on that? Three hours later, his helicopter was landing on his front lawn. That's kind of amazing. I immediately decided that's what I want to do. I want to be a concierge. Came back to the States uh, and I also spent some time in Paris and worked there. And in both cases, the concierge in London and concierge in Paris 
were very interested in me because I was the only American they'd ever seen who'd come over to Europe to work. And they gave of their great knowledge and I watched them in action and I kind of picked up their tricks of the trade and I learned, it was like learning uh, how to be a magician from, uh, well, you know, Houdini. Uh, and I came back to the States, but unfortunately no job for a concierge. And I was hired at the Fairmont as an assistant manager. And I wore exactly what I'm wearing tonight, in the evening that is. And uh, in the daytime, we wore a morning suit with striped trousers. And I'd not been there more than about uh, three months when Richard Swig, the owner of the hotel, came to me and said, Mr. Wolf, I know you're well-traveled. You worked in Europe and you've got languages and all. Uh, I've been wanting to start a concierge department in this hotel, but nobody even knows what I'm talking about. Wow. You talk about opportunity knocking. I said, Mr. Swig, I know what you're talking about. And furthermore, I will do it. <laughs> and that's how it started. I was the only person who was a concierge in the whole country. And I wanted to, uh, uh, I, I maintained my contacts with my concierge friends back in Europe because it had not been that many years that I'd been away from them. And through them, I was able to join the Golden Keys Society or the Clé d'Or. And uh, that's the folks you see that have the crossed golden keys on their lapels thing of being not only the first concierge, but being the first member of the clay door in the USA was really something. Uh, next thing you know, the newspapers got a hold of it. And once they did, and people realized, hey, this is, this is something really special. This was, uh, you know, kind of groundbreaking. It was uh, uh, something that didn't exist. A great, great service for the guests, because we at that time were very good at doing things in volume. We could serve a thousand breakfasts at a convention. Uh, we could handle uh, an arrival of 500 people uh, like it was nothing. But pity the poor person who just wants to get his wife's shoe fixed. And while he's at it, change his airline ticket and do a few other things that are normal things. He'd have to go from pillar to post to do any of that. So that's what the concierge is one-stop shopping for everything. Please set me up with a really good restaurant tonight. It's a special evening. We're celebrating our anniversary. Uh, please help me with my transportation. Recommend something for us to do tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. And as time went along, the concierge grew to the point now where we have several thousand in this country. And uh, we have quite a few members of the Clay Door in this country. I think we have over 500. In fact, we are now the biggest section of the clay door. They're organized regionally. So we have a USA section, uh, a French section, an Italian section, and so forth. And I actually went to Japan for five years and did the same thing. I became the first concierge in Japan. And uh, I, I spent five years there and uh, acquired the language and also uh, a very lovely wife who is off stage uh, right here at the moment. <laughs> that is my uh, life story. I'm sorry if that is uh, got too much stuff in it, but oh. it's the basic basic. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, with that basis, Tom was so kind to uh, he created a film for us to really get a, a basis, a foundation of what was unique in terms of the Fairmont in San Francisco and how that 
led the foundation for some really fine supper clubs. And that having been said, here we go. The story of the Fairmont Hotel begins with James Fair. In 1849, he joined thousands of other fortune seekers headed west. San Francisco at the time was a land of opportunity, full of prospectors, fortune seekers, and entrepreneurs. Anne Hall is the curator at the Wells Fargo History Museum. The largest peacetime migration ever in the history of the world was the California Gold Rush. The Wells Fargo archives, located in downtown San Francisco, contain some letters from founder Henry Wells, describing the atmosphere in the city at the time. Henry Wells says on his visit to San Francisco from New York, I am called sanguine at home, but I am an old fogey here and considered entirely too slow for this market. So San Francisco was this bustling um, young person's town. The gold rush attracted people that had, in a sense, a tolerance for risk and were really interested in trying their luck at, at certain things and taking advantage of opportunities that may present themselves. Some people maybe had a specific plan when they came to San Francisco. Many really had heard just myths and legends. James Fair came looking for gold, but silver made him rich rich enough to buy a piece of land atop Knob Hill. The fact that there is even a hotel on Knob Hill is an astonishing thing. This was the richest neighborhood in the United States. The four most imposing mansions, urban mansions, in this country at that time were on this hill. Leland Stanford built the world's shortest railroad up California Street, a cable car. Knob Hill was once almost inaccessible. In my 1906 novel, I say it was the domain of goats and fresh air enthusiasts. I had a spectacular view of, of the whole city, 360 degrees from Knob Hill. So it's, it's quite amazing to me that someone would, would be able to build a hotel in their neighborhood, but they did. It was spectacular magnificent columns, uh, handmade furniture, imported rugs. I mean, it was just an extraordinary structure. And you could see the hotel being built from almost anywhere in the city. It was a source of enormous interest and curiosity for San Franciscans and visitors, and ironically, was scheduled to open on the morning of April the 18th, 1906. At five o'clock in the morning, workers were, were hustling in the last few items there were um, a, a string of uh, horse-drawn carriages outside. The hotel was scheduled, I believe, to open at 8 o'clock in the morning, and the earthquake hit at 5.12 a.m. The 1906 earthquake and fire of San Francisco is one of the most dramatic stories that you will find anywhere. Photographs from the time show the Fairmont standing atop Knob Hill, relatively undamaged, while all around buildings had crumbled. In Oakland, a Wells Fargo employee at the time, our cashier Frederick Lippman, felt the earthquake and came out into the street and looked around. And it really was not something that they felt in immediate danger. And so uh, he went and finished his breakfast and got his clothes for the opera that night because there was the famous Enrico Caruso that was performing. The fires are what really caused the intense damage that completely leveled San Francisco. It changed the face of the city forever. The fire burned for three days. It consumed uh, 29,000 buildings, 86% of the city's standing structures. It is still the greatest disaster in American history. 
We have some incredible images of firefighters trying to put out these infernos that are starting to erupt and they are powerless because they have no water pressure or power. After fire consumed the Hall of Justice, the mayor, Eugene Smits, rushed up Knob Hill in his Pierce Arrow automobile with his staff close behind. They took up their command from the Venetian room of the Fairmont Hotel. Well, that actually was the command post for about 12 hours until the fire was approaching, and they had to abandon that on the morning of April the 19th, 1906, at 5.15 uh, a.m., almost exactly 24 hours after the earthquake hit. Some soldiers had broken into Delmonico's restaurant and tried to brew coffee in the stove, despite the fact there was a ban on cooking indoors. And when they lit the stove, the chimney was broken and it started a fire, and that fire burned up a Knob Hill, and at 5.15 a.m., April the 19th, 24 hours after the fire struck, it hit this hotel, and it burned the entire insides of this hotel, thousands of pieces of custom-made furniture, expensive rugs, marvelous draperies and beddings, and just everything in 15 minutes flat. A writer who watched the Fairmont burn wrote, I forgot the doomed city as I gazed at the Fairmont, a tremendous volume of white smoke pouring from the roof, every window a shimmering sheet of gold. Not a flame nor a spark shot forth. The Fairmont will never be as demonic in its beauty again. But despite the destruction caused by the fire, this was only the beginning of our history. You can't measure a loss until you fully understand what it was that was lost. And what we lost was one of the greatest, most amazing cities in the world. And there was so much money, so much opportunity. It was a marvelous place. Before the earthquake, the ownership of the hotel had passed from Tessie Ulrichs to two brothers, Herbert and Hardland Law. The Law brothers vowed to rebuild. As the Fairmont Hotel rose again from the ashes, it became a symbol of the renewal of the city. The time after the fire and the earthquake was an extremely emotional time and as far as the actual damage, you had this incredible array of individuals that were now homeless or had no belongings or had lost loved ones in the fire. You had to somehow maintain confidence that the city was physically safe, that they would economically rebuild and recover. Wells Fargo was part of many other institutions that came together and decided how can we physically support and economically support the activities of San Francisco and also send a statement that we are in the process of recovering and don't leave and internationally people were sending outpourings of support for this young vibrant city that had been struck down. The first major business in San Francisco to reopen was the Fairmont Hotel. It became a matter of, of some pride to see who could get a major business reopened, and the Fairmont Hotel won the race. Using drawings by Julia Morgan, the very famous architect who built, later built Hearst Castle for William Randolph Hearst, uh, the most famous female architect in all the world. She redesigned the inside of the hotel, and they just, they worked literally night and day, around the clock, seven days a week, and one year later, exactly one year, they reopened this hotel by doing a really extraordinary thing. They actually built this from the inside out, so they had to build all the floors and all the infrastructures and all the plumbing and make it conform 
onto the outside of the building. I don't, I don't think anybody had ever tried something like that before. And uh, on the morning of April the 18th, 1907, one year after the earthquake and fire, the Fairmont took its place as one of the great stories and one of the great icons in all of San Francisco history. A grand ball was held to celebrate the opening. Journalists reported that the guest consumed 600 pounds of turtle, 13,000 oysters, and cascades of champagne. At 9 p.m., a great display of fireworks illuminated the new skyline of San Francisco, which had risen from the rubble. The city would survive with the new Fairmont Hotel as its crown jewel. The Fairmont quickly became the social hub of the city. Robert Corland is a San Francisco historian and author of a book about our history. San Francisco high society was very high. You had people like the Haas family, who was making you know, Levi's for all the working men in the United States. You had the Zellerbachs, who were cutting the lumber for all the houses in California. You had meatpacking barons, and also you had the Navy here. This was the uh, naval base in the Western United States. So you had a tremendous concentration of wealth in San Francisco. The hotel continued to flourish through the First World War. In 1915, San Francisco hosted the Panama Pacific Exposition in what is today the Marina District. The Fairmont housed many of its most important visitors. In 1921, San Francisco's first popular radio station went on the air, broadcasting from the roof of the Fairmont. Throughout the 1920s, the hotel was a gathering place for the elite from all over the world. In 1929, on the eve of the Great Depression, new owners of the Fairmont decided to build San Francisco's first major hotel swimming pool. They called it the Plunge. Famous guests like Helen Hayes and Ronald Reagan swam there when they were in town. Betty Hirsch May recalls training there in the late 30s and early 40s. I'm Betty Hirsch May. I was a member of the Fairmont Hotel swim team every day. After school, that's the first thing I did, we did was run to the pool. And on the far side, you go out onto the terrace, and we used to sunbathe out there. It was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. At first, we started out as competitive swimmers. It was the Fairmont Hotel swimming team and diving. We had some of the top divers there. Phil Patterson was the coach, and he was the top diving coach. He coached uh, Helen Kurlenkovich, and Helen was scheduled to go to the 1940 Olympics when the war started, and there were no Olympics, so she got cheated out of that. But she was a champion. It was like our own private pool. There were very few people that ever used it. It was just our pool. When competition stopped, there was no competitive swimming because of the war and all. Uh, Phil Patterson turned to synchronized swimming. We used to go to the Army bases and give shows at the Army bases. And when the United Nations came to San Francisco, they had their big ball at the Fairmont right off the pool. So we gave a show for them. I remember the Arab potentates right in the front with the big robes, and it just amazed me. Today, if you visit the famous Tongaroom Bar, you're sitting in the area that was once the pool. The National Broadcasting Company invites you to listen to Glenn Miller's music. 
In April of 1945, as the Second World War came to a close, the top diplomats from the victorious nations convened at the Fairmont. The Charter of the United Nations was drafted here. Several weeks later, when they were done, President Harry Truman checked into the hotel to oversee the signing of the UN Charter at the War Memorial Opera House on June 26, 1945. President Truman was welcomed by Ben Swig, the new owner of the Fairmont. Well, there's a time for making plans, and there's a time for action. The time for action is here now. Today, the flags of all the countries that attended the United Nations meetings at the Fairmont fly outside the front door. After weathering the Great Depression and the war years, Swig knew the Fairmont was in need of a facelift. He engaged Dorothy Draper, the most famous decorator of the time, to transform the public areas of the hotel. The kings, queens, and presidents who came to visit were captivated by the opulent black, gold, and red decor. The Fairmont remained the centerpiece of San Francisco society, the place to see and be seen. Rick Swig is the grandson of Ben Swig and served as president of the Fairmont Hotel Company for several years, following in the footsteps of his father and grandfather before him. It was a family business, and at least two generations of, of my family lived there at various times. And my grandfather lived there from 1946 until his passing in 1980. That was a place where, where you went, and that's where it, that was where his office was. That's where he, he had people as guests personally within his own apartment. So one could walk into his apartment at any time and find yourself in the presence of a senator, a visiting prime minister, a great artist, a great writer, uh, a cardinal, a bishop, a business leader. It was quite extraordinary. And we were just kids visiting our grandfather, yet you might walk in and there was Senator Kennedy. Former Mayor Willie Brown reminisces about a visit by then-President Bill Clinton. We brought him into the Fairmount. Uh, he stayed in one of the suites. We brought him downstairs. And uh, in the process, he was scheduled to speak to us. And I would have the great pleasure of, of course, introducing him. And there was a, a little bit of a delay at the start of Bill Clinton's presentation. I presented him with uh, an appropriate acknowledgment. And he uh, bowed as if he was uh, uh, in the presence of a king or royalty. And then when he stood up, he apologized to the crowd for the tardiness of the commencement of his address, but he said, you should know that between myself and Mayor Brown, we couldn't decide who should enter this room first. The Fairmont has hosted every president since William Taft. Scotty Morris is a San Francisco photographer who recalls photographing former President Truman here at the hotel. When I was a very young photographer, ex-President Truman came out for uh, Kennedy for president, and he was campaigning for him. And we were using speed graphic cameras, which in those days, you could shoot one picture maybe every 25 seconds. And I was very new, and I missed the picture. And I said to the President Truman, Mr. President, would you repeat that, do that again? And he turned, and he looked at me, and he said, son... When you work with me, you get one chance and one chance only. He was great. Along with visiting royalty, movie stars, and political figures, our guests have also included many great musicians. 
The Venetian Room reigned supreme as the preeminent San Francisco Supper Club for more than 40 years. It's hard to imagine a more intimate, glamorous setting than the Venetian Room in its heyday. Michael Mendelssohn photographed many of the stars at the Venetian Room. We asked him to describe the setting as he remembers it. Dick Bright would be playing before the headliner would come on and the women were all dressed beautifully and the men were all impeccable and Herb Cain would be there. He was a very famous San Francisco columnist. It was the place to be when these headliners came through town and there were hundreds of them. Rick Swig was given the task of booking the talent for the last several years of the Venetian Room's existence as a music venue. The talent that we had in there and the history that was made in there during my tenure and the previous 30 years was really tremendous. There were racial barriers that were broken. When Lena Horne refused to play Las Vegas because the owner of the hotel wouldn't allow her to stay in the hotel, this was a given at the Fairmont in San Francisco. Of course you stay in the hotel. One of the more interesting bookings was credited to yours truly when I booked James Brown in the room, and Mr. Brown had never worked in a white nightclub. I was wondering why he was so friendly. He, he, he explained to me, he said, I've never been, I've never been booked in a, in a white supper club. The same thing with B.B. King, never been booked in a white supper club before. And me coming out of the 60s, being a graduate of that music, when given the opportunity to book B.B. King or James Brown, are you kidding me? This was an honor and a pleasure. Uh, we were a museum uh, that was still presenting phenomenal music by artists that the word legends is made for. My name is Steve Strzok. I'm the guest service manager here, and I handle many of the VIPs. Elton John was here rehearsing for a private show in the Venetian Room. I was an Elton John fan in the past, and I still am, frankly. So I was there for his rehearsal, and I just found that exciting as the old band members were there, and they were tweaking each song, and Elton was saying, no, 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 so we like, bring up the tempo. Stop saying now, Tony Bennett happened to be in the house, and he must have heard the rehearsal. He came into the Venetian room and came and talked to Elton, and they were, you know, back-slapping and just chuckling about something. I don't know what. To this day, the Fairmont continues to welcome guests from all over the world, and we treat them all like celebrities. On behalf of the Fairmont Hotel, thank you for being part of our history. I'm Tom Wolfe. For more information about any of the stories you've heard today, visit our Heritage Hall exhibition, located just off the main lobby of the hotel, or inquire at the hotel's concierge desk. Well, Tom, that, that begs the question, if this is now the preeminent space uh, in San Francisco, if you could explain a little bit about high society and how that parlayed itself into supper clubs? Certainly. Uh, well, the society, uh, because it's, it's also known as society, high society is also known as just plain old society. Plain old is not really a good word, but uh, high society and society are synonymous. And the society, uh, so hence you'd have the society editor of a newspaper and so forth. Uh, the society affairs that had been held in San Francisco, uh, cotillions and different things like that, all had taken place at the Palace Hotel. And once the Fairmont opened and once Tessie Fair, uh, the owner, uh, 
was installed there, she decided that she was very much a social climber and she decided that she wanted to have the Fairmont become the social center of San Francisco. And uh, there was a chap named Ned Greenaway, who was uh, kind of the social arbiter of the time. He managed, uh, she managed to persuade him to move a lot of those balls up to the Fairmont on Knob Hill and that, and the rest is history. That, that became the place to be. And of course it was, Nice because Knob Hill itself has a certain cachet to it to this day. Knob being short for Nabob uh, and meaning someone of great wealth. And uh, the society, the definition of it is the movers and shakers and the important people of the city. Now, interestingly enough, uh, high society in uh, the USA was not quite the same as high society overseas, uh, to wit, uh, England. Uh, in order to be in society in England, you had to be from a noble family, uh, the aristocracy, which we don't have in the United States. We did not have the aristocracy per se. And so uh, I, I remember very well being at the Ritz and, and watching all of these people and, you know, dealing with aristocrats. Lord Carnarvon used to come and stay there. And uh, he traveled with a valet and uh, the valet would have uh, lunch with us because we were in an upper echelon dining room. So it was all about the caste, uh, kind of a caste system uh, in England. Whereas in America, if you had become uh, the land of opportunity, if you'd become famous from doing something like Mr. Fair, James Graham Fair, uh, he made a fortune in silver uh, through the Comstock load, the consolidated mining up in uh, Nevada, uh, which everybody thought was finished. And he, had a keen eye on mining. He, he had experience in that, and he felt that no, no, there's plenty of silver in there if we, if we uh, mine it correctly. And he and his partner uh, went around and uh, purchased. Uh, I think his partner had a saloon up there, and they purchased uh, all these shares of consolidated mining, Comstock, uh, for next to nothing because everybody thought it was tapped out. Well, guess what? Uh, it wasn't. <laughs> and James Fair proved that because he then went in there and got out so much silver that he became, uh, he, 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 he was just an extremely wealthy, wealthy person. Even though he came from a somewhat humble background from Ireland, you know, uh, but he instantly was skyrocketed to high society. Uh, along with a number of other people who made money with the railroads and different uh, things. That's how San Francisco was. Uh, it's very interesting. And there, uh, there are books about that. Uh, I have some in my library. And uh, although James Fair uh, was very wealthy, uh, he was known as Bonanza Jim. That was his nickname because he made his money from the Comstock load, which was indeed a bonanza, but he was also known as Slippery Jim. Why? 
because he was a landlord. He owned a ton of real estate. And his modus operandi was, I think, kind of interesting. He would buy, or rather, he would uh, rent uh, a, an apartment or a room to someone. And he would make them sign a piece of paper that said that they were responsible for all maintenance. That's an interesting twist. Okay, well, what does that mean exactly, you know? Uh, well, what if the building needs a coat of paint? Well, I'm not going to paint it. It's not my house. I mean, I live here, but it's, I don't own it. So, uh, and if a pipe uh, starts leaking, well, you're sure as heck not going to go out and hire a plumber to fix it because then you'd have to pay for it. So you're going to just put an old rag around the old leak there and a bucket underneath it. <laughs> so therefore, he became, uh, aside from being a, a very uh, famous landlord, uh, he also became a slumlord. And his buildings were not very nice after that. Uh, and yet he uh, had this idea uh, he had a beautiful house uh, down on Bush Street uh, on Knob Hill, which uh, I hope I don't offend anybody when I say that that side of Knob Hill is, you know, not considered the fashionable side. The south slope of Knob Hill, I think, is how it used to be referred to in real estate things. And he was so he wanted a house up on the very top of uh, Knob Hill, and he bought that plot of land where the Fairmont now stands. And he wanted it for his own home. He wanted to have another grand mansion. He wanted to be up there, right up there with the floods and, you know, the Huntingtons. And uh, he, he wanted to uh, be part of that Knob Hill uh, rarefied air uh, brigade. He um, unfortunately had a falling out with his wife and wound up uh, wound up uh, dying with nobody at his side except a nurse and a doctor, and uh, that was it. Uh, however, the money then passes on to the wife, uh, his wife, and to uh, uh, the daughters, and uh, they take the ball and run with it. They decide to build the Fairmont Hotel. Some of People said that it was in honor of their dad. Uh, having been through a lot of different books about that, I'm, I take a slightly dim view or a jaundiced view of that. Uh, I think it was uh, that Tessie, the great social climber, these girls had been, they were very high society. They'd been to Europe with their mother. And uh, in fact, some of the pieces in the Fairmont they brought back with them from Europe. Uh, the, those Venetian mirrors, hence the Venetian room you see behind me, the Venetian mirrors and different things they brought back with them. Uh, very high society they were, as was uh, a lot of the people, as I say, even the floods and so forth. What is a supper club? Could you, could you lay out the land in terms of what we would expect? What were the notorious ones? And perhaps who would play them? Sure. Well, now, uh, the most famous supper club of all in San Francisco was the one right behind me, the Venetian Room. And Ben Swig uh, 
bought the Fairmont in the, uh, let's see, when was it? It was in the, the 40s, uh, like it was right after World War II. I'd have to say, uh, hazard a guess of about 44 or 45, okay? He buys the Fairmont Hotel, which at that time has kind of been run down and is like an old folks home. Uh, it's been described as the residents were sitting around in the lobby amongst the potted palms there. And, uh, you know, pretty depressing kind of place. Not, uh, no life to it, no, uh, no glamour, no activity. Just, just uh, kind of had, uh, had, had gone downhill quite a bit. So he brought in Dorothy Draper, who had, uh, was a lady who invented d interior decoration. I mean, I really mean that. That that, that that's somebody you want to uh, look look up and 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 see about. Very interesting lady. She, uh, in fact, if anybody, I'm sure some people uh, have been to the Greenbrier Hotel in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Uh, that was completely done by her. It had been a hospital during the war, and she had been commissioned to redecorated and as it was being put back into service as a hotel. Uh, so he brings in Dorothy Draper to do the hotel over and boy, does she hit a home run. She, uh, her system of operation was if she'd go to a site, she would look it over, then she'd have a uh, sleep, uh, you know, she'd sleep overnight. And in the morning, she'd wake up with a concept that would come to her in her in her sleeping time, uh, in her dreams, I guess. So, <laughs> so she decided that it would be equal parts, um, it would be a combination of Venetian palace meets Wild West's uh, bordello. And so she decorated it uh, in the lobby with very dark walls uh, which was unusual then. It was very, very unheard of to do very dark walls. Uh, red plush furniture, and I can still remember it because it, th that decor stayed until through through the uh, through the 90s, and it was uh, the millennium that we did a uh, uh, complete restoration and brought the lobby back to the way it was when the hotel had opened. Uh, and this carpet that had these amazing uh, gigantic paisley uh, patterns on it. Uh, and lamps, uh, all the lobby lamps had black shades. Uh, and she was very big on black and gold. That's where the, uh, all of the, uh, a lot of the logos came from. In fact, behind me, you'll see those three murals uh, Dorothy Draper was responsible for them. And you, if you look carefully, you can see that there's a kind of fancy uh, frame around them. When we did the renovation, or I should say the restoration, uh, we were not allowed to remove those murals, even though they'd kind of deteriorated uh, because they were historically part of the room. Interesting piece there. Um, she... Uh, uh, did a fantastic job and the people came in and they were starved because it was World War II, it was just over and there was nothing colorful. Back then you didn't have fabric and you didn't have uh, paint unless it was olive green. And so, so I don't know how she did it. She must've had some really good connections, but 
you walked into the Fairmont and here was this riot of color that just greeted you. And uh, it was, it was, it was amazing. So the Fairmont Venetian room was the supper club for the Fairmont. Now, what does that mean? Okay. It was a glamorous place to go when you wanted to have a night on the town. And boy, here again, the people were starved for nightlife. They wanted to go out. They wanted to celebrate. War is over. Let's get back to normal, you know, and uh, let's, let's enjoy ourselves again. And so uh, you would come into the Venetian room and the band would be playing and the waiters would be all walking around in red tailcoats and the... Uh, band uh, the, the, there would always there would be a headliner that would play the room uh i'm thinking behind me that might be peggy lee but i'm not sure uh the interesting thing about ben swig is that ben swig uh he did something very 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 good which is he broke the color barrier for artists who were coming to perform what do i mean by that well if uh, you were coming to perform in a hotel and you were a person of color, fine, you'd uh, do your uh, engagement, but you wouldn't stay in the hotel. They wouldn't allow that. You'd stay across town in a different neighborhood. And Ben Swig uh, wanted nothing to do with that. Uh, I remember, uh, I forget who the artist was, but the manager said to Ben Swig, uh, now where can we put uh, so-and-so up? And uh, he said, what do you mean? He said, well, obviously she's not going to stay here. He said, well, why not? <laughs> and, and thereby hangs a tail. So from that point forward, any artist who came to, to perform at the Fairmont stayed in the Fairmont. And that was groundbreaking, and that was a wonderful thing that he did. And as a result, uh, artists of color uh, performed over the years. You name anybody, uh, from Ray Charles on down to Tina Turner, and uh, they, uh, they, I won't say they, they have Ben Swig to thank for that, no. But we, as a society, do have Ben Swig to thank for getting that ball rolling, shall we say. There were other, absolutely other supper clubs in the city. The Mark Hopkins had one, um, very much on the same idea, but not quite as glamorous as the Fairmont. The one that I think is one of the more interesting ones was the Forbidden City. Uh, that was downtown and it was an all Asian nightclub. And if anybody's seen the film Flower Drum Song, which is one of my favorite movies, mainly because it's got Rogers and Hammerstein in it and Nancy Kwan and a lot of other great actors. There's a nightclub in that called the, uh, in that movie, it's called the Celestial Gardens. That's right. And that is actually uh, taken from the Forbidden City that really existed and was, and was very much like that. It was all Asian uh, staff and uh, Asian entertainment. So that was an interesting one. And then there were some others like the Sinaloa, which was a Mexican place. You'd have Mexican food and, and they'd have special Mexican dancing. Uh, 
There was even a Filipino place called the Mabuhay Gardens uh, down on Broadway. And I can remember when that was still operational. Uh, that was kind of a cool place. Uh, uh, again, going a little bit down market there, it wasn't as glamorous as the, I mean, you know, you couldn't get near the Venetian if you didn't have a jacket and tie on. Oh, yes. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was very, very dressy. And uh, that was, uh, that was an interesting, an interesting thing. And uh, I, I, when I arrived at the Fairmont in, uh, that would have been 1970, about 78, I believe that I came here uh, to the Fairmont the first time. And uh, I, I was just taken aback when I saw the Venetian room. And that was part of my beat as an assistant manager. I had to walk around and uh, go uh, make sure everything was okay there. And uh, uh, I, I used to go in the side door to be very discreet when the show would be on. And I'd stand there and I'd watch, you know, the entertainer, whoever it might have been, maybe Anthony Newley or uh, Oscar Peterson or, you know, uh, could have been anybody. And I'm standing there. And as my eyes got accustomed to the dark, sometimes I'd see someone standing next to me. And I'd turn slowly and look and it would be one of the elevator operators. <laughs> and I'd say, uh, Ben, Ben, get back to your elevator, please, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Only reason that they ended was because of the economy, uh, the cost of operating one of those, you know, paying for the headliner and uh, the waiters and everything like that, uh, because the price tag of the entertainers would go up, up, up and up. and they wound up playing large venues. Uh, we used to have a venue in San Francisco area called, uh, what was it called? Circle Star Theater. Um, and it was a theater in the round. I, I only went there once and it was to see a Japanese artist. And it was a very, very interesting experience. In your experience, I know there have to be some, some tales in that <laughs> vein. Uh, of course, we heard I left my heart in San Francisco. Perhaps you could uh, clue us in a little bit about that. Sure. Well, Tony Bennett debuted that song right there in the Venetian room. And uh, it was actually the B side of a record. Uh, the other side was a song called Once Upon a Time. Probably most people have heard that one, too. Uh, but the other side just took off, and uh, so it, it sold so so many uh, so many copies. The uh, thing that was interesting, you know, he he then became like Mr. San Francisco. We, we now have a statue of Tony Bennett uh, that is standing right outside the hotel on Mason Street, and the block of Mason Street where the Fairmont is, has now been named Tony Bennett Way. And, uh, and I love that. I think that's great to have the whole street named after him and then have his statue there. Statue was made by a fellow named Bruce Wolf, spelt the same way as me, but no yeah. relation. And <laughs> I'm thinking of maybe uh, one of these days saying, hey, cousin Brucey, uh, could you make, make a statue of me? No, it doesn't have to be big like Tony, you know, small, like a miniature would be okay. <laughs> 
but uh, that was, uh, uh, the, the, I think the moment, the defining moment uh, of Tom Wolfe, the Fairmont, the Venetian Room, Tony Bennett and everything. I've known him for like 40 years. And one of the nicest things about him, uh, he is like, first of all, one of the nicest people you will ever meet in your life. He always will take time to stop and talk to you and, uh, you know, sign an autograph for somebody. And uh, when he would come to stay at the Fairmont, which was very often because uh, even after the Venetian Room closed, if he was doing a gig in town, uh, the Fairmont was the place where he would stay. And he would make a point of coming over to the concierge desk and standing on the side. Uh, and I would catch with my peripheral vision, somebody's over there, you know, and then I'd turn and it, there he was, Tony Bennett. Say, oh, nice to see you again. He always wanted to just say hello to me. And he, he, he's been very, very nice to me over the years. Now, uh, the great story. The 50th anniversary of I Left My Heart in San Francisco. This is a few years ago. I, I, I meant to look up the exact date, but it really doesn't matter. It's just a call it, call it seven, eight years ago. It was the 50th anniversary of the debut of the song in the Venetian Room. UCSF, uh, the hospital, put on a uh, charity event in the Venetian Room and everybody had to wear black tie and Tony Bennett was the guest of honor. He was the person who was the entertainment and he was going to be celebrating the I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Well, uh, during the day, there was all this activity at the Venetian Room. I mean, every single manager in the whole place was pressed into uh, work there. You know, come on, move some chairs here. Help me out here. Help me with this reservation book. I got to get this done. You know, we're on, we're on a deadline here. And <laughs> so they didn't ask for my help, which was fine. That's okay. I was willing to do anything they wanted, but they didn't, didn't need me. And, uh, what I did do, I, knowing the Fairmont the way I do, I went upstairs to the level right above the lobby and there's an access to the light booth for the Venetian room with a little window, not much bigger than like a, a, a good sized TV these days. And uh, I was able to watch him rehearse for a little bit and Anyway, I came back down and I went back to my work and then it was time for me to go home. And I believe that was, uh, there was, my wife and I were celebrating something special. I can't remember if it was our anniversary or something. I don't think it was our anniversary, but it was, it was, it was, we were having a little special thing where I was cooking dinner for her and I was gonna make something very nice and very special. And so I was, you know, working my way around the kitchen and the phone rings and, you know, I grabbed the phone and, it was the general manager of the Fairmont, Mark Huntley, calling me. Mark's a good friend of mine and known him for many years. And he was the one who recruited me to come back to the Fairmont because I left in about 19, uh, let's see here. Well, I left early in the eighties and I came back in 1995. And Mark said, uh, and he's, he's a British guy, right? He says, he says, Tommy, Tommy, you've got to help me out here. And I said, well, what is it, Mark? You know, I, I'd do anything for this guy. He's, he's a great guy, right? And he, he brought me back to the Fairmont. He said, uh, 
you know, Tony Bennett uh, is having his event tonight. I said, oh, I know that very well. Yes, indeed. He said, and his announcer uh, has got laryngitis. Tony personally asked if I would call you and see if you could stand in for his announcer and, you know, announce him onto the stage and, you know, so forth. <laughs> and I, I looked at my wife and uh, I, I, I said, hold on a minute. Uh, I got to take care of Tony Bennett tonight and be the announcer for him. And my wife just gave me the nod. Okay. I said, Mark, I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, I jumped back into my suit. Now, it was very interesting. The Venetian room, uh, it's not a huge room. And when you walk through the big double doors at the entrance, uh, they had a big sound table right there. And that was my base. And I was basically going to be the disembodied voice, which, which is fine with me. Uh, and uh, so I took my cues from the sound guy. I had to do a little business with the host first, you know, a little back and forth where I was, uh, he, he called it the voice of God. I, I, I'm not that pres presumptuous, you know, <laughs> uh, where I had to go, uh, yes, Bill. Yes, we know you're ready tonight. Now, Bill, is there anything you need? And, you know, it was some sort of little comedy shtick that he had written, not me. And, uh, and then it was time. Uh, then there was a little pause. And, uh, and then I got my cue from the sound man. And that's when I went into my, ladies and gentlemen, the Venetian Room takes great pleasure in welcoming back Mr. Tony Bennett. And then, the, you know, it was like uh, it, the piano played this little, uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, they vamped a little bit. And then Tony came out and he started singing, watch what happens. And, and it was all nice and just cool and everything. And, and of course, I had this beautiful place where I could watch the whole thing. Uh, and all those managers who were running around during the day, moving chairs and everything. They couldn't go because it was occupied by all of the people from UCSF. <laughs> they, they couldn't even watch from the wings. And uh, so uh, about 40 minutes into the show, uh, you heard that familiar piano riff, uh, you know, dun, 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 and you knew it was, that was it. And, and, he, and he just knocked it out of the park. I left my heart in San Francisco. That's probably the most uh, the biggest memory I have about Tony Bennett and what a, what a great man and he's still doing it. he's still concertizing yeah the the heritage of that that room is just remarkable as, as I was emailing you uh in preparation for this I was trying to you know I you know you can walk down heritage hall which is a it goes it's one of the halls in the Fairmont and you just pass every single person you could possibly think of. And it is just, it's just amazing. Uh, and, and certainly Tony Bennett, one of those, uh, the pinnacle of those, those sorts of folks. Give us a little background. Um, what's the seating capacity of the Venetian room, A, B? Was the Palace Hotel any kind of competition? I didn't know there was going to be a test. <laughs> you know, let me look at my cheat sheet here. No, seriously, Mo, uh, 
yeah, the Venetian room, I, I believe it was a small room. And I think that at its uh, peak, it couldn't have held more than 200 people. And I mean, that would be with a tight, tight squeeze. Uh, the old story was, you know, you'd come in there and uh, the maitre d' was this old guy and you'd say to him, uh, 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 you know, I, I'd like to go see the show. And you go, no, we're fully booked. <laughs> and uh, then a, uh, some money would pass hands and for some reason, I don't know how he did it, but he could tell if you slipped him a, a bill, what denomination it was. I don't know how he did that. I don't know if you can tell with the ink or what, whatever, but he, he, he knew if it was like a, if it was like a, 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 a 20 or a five, he'd, he'd know. And based on that, suddenly uh, a waiter would appear from the wings bearing a table on his head and another waiter bearing two chairs and they would suddenly wind up ringside for the show. <laughs> Speaking of the Garden Court, beautiful room in the Palace Hotel, uh, reminiscent of the Palm Court at the Plaza Hotel in New York. And I did work at the Plaza for a while before I came back uh, to San Francisco. Uh, uh, that was no, no, uh, no competition at all because they didn't have a, uh, a, a supper club or a showroom per se. I think the St. Francis did back in the day, and, and certainly the uh, uh, certainly the Mark did, but uh, not the uh, not the Palace. They had an orchestra that was led by a fellow named Ernie Heckscher, often mispronounced as Ernie Heckshire, but it was Ernie Heckscher, and Ernie Heckscher was a uh, uh, very very nice looking fellow. He had uh, Ben Swig had hired him way, way, way back when on a six-week contract and he just stayed. He just stayed and, and, and that was it. Now, you had two shows a night. You had a nine o'clock show and then you had another show at midnight. And uh, if my memory serves me right, the nine o'clock show, there was half an hour of music for dancing prior to the actual show. So like from nine to nine thirty, they'd be dancing and music. And that's when you'd be coming in, you would be entering to have your dinner and the band would be playing in the background. And it was uh, a full orchestra, full band, you know. Uh, and the acoustics of that room have always been marvelous. You couldn't ask for a more perfect room as far as uh, acoustically it goes to, to play, whether it was uh, a, an artist singing by themselves uh, or somebody with, uh, you know, a, a, a big band or just Ernie Hexer and his orchestra playing. Uh, it, it was, uh, it was, you know, immediately giving you the mood. So, and you'd come in, you'd, you'd wait your turn and then the maitre d' would come in and seat you. And here again, getting a good table, which there really wasn't a lousy table in that, in that uh, room at all. Uh, but to get that ringside table, uh, you'd, want to, uh, you'd want to shake hands with the maitre d', uh, so to speak. <laughs> right. and, uh, and then you'd get led to your table and then the waiters would come over. And these guys were, I mean, these were the pro waiters. These were the guys who'd been doing it all the time and they knew, they knew just how to do it right. An anecdote for those of, those of you who know Bob Sutherland, uh, uh, an otherwise 
unassuming uh, guy uh, regaled me with a, a tale where he was visiting the the supper club, the the Venetian room, and uh, I'm, I certainly won't do it justice, but it effectively uh, drank uh, to a greater degree than than he was typically used to, and. Uh, Wound, he wound up in the Tonga room, uh, which is another event, uh, another event space, uh, tiki bar sort of environment, uh, where uh, he was very tipsy and nearly fell into the pool. And so uh, for those of you who know Bob, you would not expect that out of Bob. But uh, the, the guy, Bob knows how to party. And uh, uh -huh. And so that that's kind of a funny uh, Fairmont or Fairmont oriented uh, tale we can bring back to the Rossmore Rossmore Big Band. <laughs> Maxwell, this is Jamie. I I have a question for Tom. And uh, since you know we're a big band, I'm curious what of the big bands that we might have heard of uh, over the years have have played in the Venetian Room. Wow, that's that's a good one. Uh, I. I always think in terms of artists that have played there, um, the uh, because what would happen is uh, you'd have somebody like let's say Anthony Newley. He was he was a popular artist there, the English guy. Uh, he might have uh, two or three musicians traveling with him, and then they'd be augmented by the rest of the, uh, by by other people from the band. Uh, there was. Uh, I remember John Denver uh, did a gig there, and uh, he had maybe uh, four people with him. But he, he, again, they added people from Ernie's band. Uh, I'm I'm hard pressed to think of seeing a a big band playing in that room because you already had one in situ. If you follow me, you yeah, had, yeah. you had that, uh, uh, you had Ernie, Ernie and his, and his guys there. Referencing the heritage hall, there's a playbill there. And if I it could be mistaken, but I recall seeing in the span of just a couple days, you had, uh, Sammy Davis, Jr. You had Ella Fitzgerald, uh, you had the, um, the name escapes me. The guy who did Beyond the Sea, Dud, guy Bobby Darren, Bobby Darren, all within the span of like a week, and it just it just is astonishing that you could have theoretically, uh, if you were part of this uh, social environment, gone for a week worth of concerts and and kind of knocked everything off the list in terms you you could possibly think of in terms of entertainer. Uh, and, and from a, a big band perspective, as someone that sits in the back row, what a gig to be in the Ernie Hecksher band. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. My goodness. And, yeah, I mean, they, they, here, here were musicians who had literally a full-time job, and uh, they had to do two shows a night. So uh, I, I'm now I'm over there as an assistant manager, I'm still in my 20s, you know, I'm like maybe 29 when I went to work at the, uh, at the uh, Fairmont. And uh, here are these guys, you know, who all were, uh, dare I say, older than me, you know, and uh, they, they'd play their first set, okay, and 
you know, I'm making my rounds. I go through the Venetian room kitchen and now it's between first set and second set. So what do they do in the meantime? Well, they sit around and they're, they're drinking stuff. You know, I, I didn't know what they were drinking. They, they, they went back and they played a perfect set. They weren't <laughs> losing it, you know, I mean, or not excessively. They got home. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's funny. And, and, and there is still music at least until recently when everything closed, uh, there, there still remains music uh, regular on a regular basis. Uh, Absolutely, I saw uh, Stacy Kent there, and uh, mm. you know this was an artist I just discovered one day. I had the radio on, and I heard this this uh, woman singing a song called uh, "The Summer We Crossed Europe in the Rain," which is a great title right there. If you can remember it, that's that's good too, uh, and. Uh, and she had this nice dreamy kind of voice. And I thought, wow, she's good. And uh, when I researched her, man, she's everywhere. She's like got a gig in every city around the world. And all of a sudden I found out she was appearing at the Fairmont. And uh, I, so I went to the Venetian and saw her and it was one of the best things I ever saw. Uh, she's got a small group that she travels with and her husband plays the sax and I guess some other stuff. Uh, so Stacy Kent was one one of the people I've seen there. I also saw Marvin Hamlish there. Mm. He was he was terrific. What a great piano player! And unfortunately, not too long after that, he suddenly passed away. He he was he was awesome though. It was really really good. Okay, Ella Fitzgerald. Who doesn't know? Who doesn't like Ella Fitzgerald? Uh, it's uh, she's doing a gig now. She used to play the Venetian Room. Uh, on a very regular basis. She's coming to town now uh, and she's playing the Masonic Auditorium, which is just up the street from the Fairmont, okay? Uh, and she goes up there and she does her gig. I have to work that evening. And I'm dressed just like I am now. And I'm uh, now the concert is over and the people are coming into the hotel. You know, uh, a lot of people at that Masonic and they're coming into the hotel to have a, a bite to eat because there was a restaurant there in those days called the Brasserie that was open 24 hours a day. Uh, so I guess it's about 10, 15, something like that at night. And I'm doing my rounds and there's Ella standing in line. Here's all the people from the party, uh, not party from the show, you know, the, the people who had seen her. And here's Ella in there in a nice fur coat waiting in line along with them. Nobody even knows it's Ella Fitzgerald. Well, I mean, who would have thought, right? I mean, Ella Fitzgerald behind me waiting in line. Are you kidding? So I saw her and I knew her pretty well. And I, I, I said, Ella, what are you doing here? Take a walk with me. Come on. And uh, she said, I just want to get a bite to eat, honey. And I said, well, 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 we'll arrange that. Come on over here with me. So I took her into the brasserie and there was a little ante room there. And I said, have a seat there, Ella. And I said to the maitre d', I said, okay, Louis, who was the last party that you seated? And he said, oh, Mr. Wolf, it was that young couple over there. So I looked over and I could see they had the program on their, on their table from the show. Okay, so my usual debonair self, I, I wandered over there and I said, good evening, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> and they said, fine. I said, oh, you went to the show too, huh? And they said, yes, yes. I said, wasn't she great? Uh, a perfectly legitimate question. It made it sound like I'd been there. I hadn't, but it wasn't really a lie. 
She was great. Okay. <laughs> I, I said, how would you like to meet Ella? Really? Meet Ella Fitzgerald? I said, yes, I can, I can arrange that for you pretty easily. I'll tell you what, if you're willing to give up your table uh, just right now and let Ella have a bite to eat, I'll not only introduce you, I'll give you dinner on the house at the next table that becomes available. And that's how it happened. And uh, I, I remember uh, at some point I said to Ella, I think it was later on, she came out to thank me. And she, I said to her, Ella, you know, you are just such an incredible artist. And I have so much respect for you. Thank you so much for always making people happy. And so she looked at me and she had those funny glasses, those cat's, cat's eye glasses, and she kind of put, brought them down a little bit. And she looked at me and she said, well, honey, it beats taking in washing. <laughs> I'm just quoting her. But <laughs> There's music in the lobby as well as still in the, of course, until recently, uh, music in the Tonga room and, and the pianist that, that's in the, the lobby. And most that's recently, right. Michael Udelson, for whom I've, I've befriended as a result of of passing through all, all time. But uh, it's interesting that, that in spite of the fact that there may not be nightly headliners in the Venetian room, there's still that same sensation as soon as you walk through the door, uh, that the music, you know, reigns through the, the whole lobby. And it's, it's nice in terms of the Rossmore Big Band to see that the, the, the similarities in terms of what we're doing in our concerts through the the great work of, of Mo, of course, Greg, all of these people, the, the team of volunteers. What, what's striking me is the similarities in terms of our concerts and what you're describing happening at the, the Fairmont. Of course, we're not the Ernie Heckscher Orchestra, but, you know, we're getting there. And that's just, uh, <laughs> that's uh, really, th thank you, Mo, you know, and thank you for the, for the rest of the musicians that, that uh, uh, it's it's just exciting to sort of feel that. Definitely. Not so fast, Maxfield. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Tom just called, and they happen to have an opening next week Whoa. for the Rossmore Band. Now, they guaranteed nobody would come because you can't during COVID, but there is a room. The lights can go on, and if you too want to go to San Francisco, we could finally say, hey, Greg, you want to play the Venetian room? Yeah, okay. We'll let you know, Tom. We're, we're checking it out. Right on, right on. Uh, we are closing in on the end, and I want to first uh, recognize, Tom, you're a great historian, uh, concierge. If we have any questions, we're not going to go to Google. We're not going to go to Alexa. We're going to call you direct, okay? You, <laughs> Please do. Yeah, thank you. And you have all those addresses mem memorized, okay? And phone numbers. Hello, Mo. Charlie here. Yeah, Charlie. I have a question for Tom Wolf. We're almost the same age. Uh, he left New York, he said, back to Washington when he was uh, a late teenager. Tom, did you ever uh, get a chance to visit Roseland Dance City in Manhattan? Oh, Roseland in New York. Uh you know, I, I, I have to be honest with you. I could fake it and say, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I used to do the Lindy there and everything, but I didn't, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, Roseland was still in existence then when, when I was a, you know, a youngster, and, uh, but I didn't have a chance to, to go there. Um, 
I, I did go to the Copa. That was a big deal. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I remember um, uh, when we had our senior prom, there was a, 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 a couple of uh, the people who were at the prom went to Copa afterwards and they said, geez, $2.45 for a chicken sandwich. Oh my God. You know? <laughs> yeah, I just, I was introduced, you know, growing up there by my father to Roseland and went there a number of times and, you know, listened to the bands. And it was, it was an amazing place because you had two orchestras. You had Arguesa who played Latin and they were the house band. And then you had the other groups that came in for a week or two at a time. And it's funny, earlier today, I happened to spot an LP sitting on my floor and I put it on, it was Don Glasser and his orchestra. And they played oh, at Roseland and they were my favorite. But uh, it was a wonderful place to go to. And I'm so happy my father introduced me to it. But he also introduced me to Ernie Heckscher and Freddie Martin and uh, some of those groups out there. So uh, great. wonderful times. Thanks, Charlie. Um, from our virtual bandstand, the Rossmore virtual bandstand, I'd like to sign off for the night and thank all of you, all of our special guests, Tom Maxfield, communications team, student associates, our seniors and our community band members. Thank you so much. St stay safe, stay safe. Good night, everyone.